Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. On this episode, we are going to talk about something called convalescent plasma and its potential role in combating COVID-19 in those with primary immunodeficiencies. All right, let's get started. everyone, welcome to this episode, A Fresh Look at Convalescent Plasma for COVID-19. My name is Christopher Scalchoons, and I'm Vice President of Research at the Immune Deficiency Foundation. I'm happy to be your host for today's podcast episode. Back in February of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic first started, I believed and still believe that one of our immediate effective tools to combat the SARS-CoV-2 virus and all of its variants that cause COVID-19 would be the use of convalescent plasma. Relatively early on, some celebrities like Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson donated their plasma after they recovered from COVID-19 to be used to treat others. I joined Twitter for the very first time to support them and shout about the potential benefits of what is known as convalescent plasma. It was on Twitter where I met and got connected with today's guests, Dr. Arturo Casadevall. Dr. Casadevall is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor and Alfred and Jill Summer Chair of the Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Casadevall has primary appointments in both Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He received his PhD and medical degree from New York University. He completed his internship residency in internal medicine at Bellevue Hospital and specialized in infectious diseases at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Prior to joining Johns Hopkins, he served as director of the Center for Immunological Sciences and chair of the microbiology and immunology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He is the author of over 800 papers, books, and chapters and his major interests are in fungal pathogenesis and the mechanisms of antibody action. Dr. Casadevall is editor-in-chief of MBio, deputy editor of the Journal of Clinical Investigation and serves on several editorial boards. His work has been recognized with numerous awards, including election to the American Society for Clinical Investigation, American Academy of Physicians, American Academy of Microbiology, Fellow of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the AAB 2021 President's Award, and the National Academy of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Casadevall. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Christopher. Of course. So why don't we get started with some basics? Can you please explain to us what convalescent plasma is and when it was first used? So convalescent plasma, two words. Plasma, let's take the last word first. Plasma is the liquid part of the blood. That's the part that contains the antibodies. Convalescent is exactly what it means. When you're getting better. So in generally, whenever we get an infectious disease and we recover from it, we tend to make antibodies to whatever infected us. In this case, in the case of COVID, is to the virus known as SARS-CoV-2, which is the cause of COVID. 
And in the convalescent period, that is when you're recovering, you're making these antibodies and you continue to make them for months after. And these antibodies can be taken in the form of plasma, the liquid of the blood, and used to treat others. And this is a therapy that dates from the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and it was being used in practically every epidemic. And um, it's usually used in a rush because there is no other available. But it probably the, the big use was in the 1918 pandemic. And in the United States, the use of this therapy was associated with about a 20% reduction in mortality. It was the only thing they had back in, in 1918 to treat this. Right. And uh, that was the influenza pandemic back then. So can you explain to us how convalescent plasma, plasma is actually obtained and processed? So it's obtained in blood donation centers. Uh, basically, it's very similar to blood donation, except that what they do is they take the liquid. They don't take the, there's a machine that takes the liquid that doesn't take the red cells. Uh, so the person sits there and, you know, uh, this, this process is, goes on for maybe an hour. And the good thing is that a single person can produce two to three units of plasma. So a single person with a lot of antibody can treat two or three others. That's fantastic. So after they collect the plasma, does it go through any type of cleaning or inactivation or matching for people? How do they do that? So the blood banking industry is our most regulated medical industry. Uh, they have a lot of experience and their main concern is safety. So what they do is the plasma is tested for potential infectious agents. The plasma is tested for uh, typing. You want to try to match the typing. Uh, they, and they, there's a lot of quality control that goes into it. At that point, the plasma can be used or can be frozen. And that's important because if you can freeze it, you have it for the future. And you can, in fact, ship it to other parts of the country that need it. And then when it's needed, it can be thought and then used on a patient. Very good. Thank you for that. And could you please tell us a little bit about what types of advantages or even disadvantages uh, convalescent plasma might have in treating those with primary immunodeficiency who have COVID? So let's go through the advantages uh, and then let's talk about the disadvantages. The advantages are, uh, are that is the re that the product, that is the plasma is known, we call it polyclonal and that's as different than a monoclonal. It means that it has many different types of antibodies. It means that it hits the virus at multiple places. Monoclonals hit it at one place. If you have two monoclonals, then you hit it in two places. But the big advantage, especially in the immunocompromise, is that these patients often have trouble clearing the infection. And they often have a lot of virus in them. So if you were to use a monoclonal, there is a, a danger of selecting for resistance. Whereas if you use plasma, because it hits the virus in many different places, one is less likely to select for resistance. So the first thing is it hits the virus in many places. That's one advantage. The other great advantage is that it's relatively cheap. This is made from donors. There is no profit. There is no pharmaceutical industry 
involved. This is pretty much comes from altruistic people who donate their plasma to help others. And, uh, and the third uh, advantage, as I alluded to before, is that this is something that can be frozen and can be used in the future. And perhaps most importantly today, it is the only antibody therapy that keeps up with the variants. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you have a variant and you recover from it, you have antibody to treat that variant. So whereas other monoclonals, for example, are fixed in time at the time they were made, this is a therapy that keeps up with the changes in the virus. Not of disadvantages. The major disadvantage that plasma has is that it is heterogeneous. What do I mean by heterogeneous? Every unit is different. So physicians often are uncomfortable. They, they're used to write an order for 500 milligrams of this drug or use this amount. Plasma is, every unit is different, but the, what we have learned in the past two years and the FDA has updated it as recently as a month ago is that you can define what a good unit of plasma is by measuring the amount of antibody. So even though every unit is different, you can find consistency, but that is the main disadvantage. Many in our community actually depend on the polyclonal plasma donations and take that on a quite a, a regular basis uh, to help prophylactically prevent some of those breakthrough infections. So as you discussed, the advantage is that it's going to be much more recent to the latest variants of that, whereas the regular plasma supply today might have slightly increasing values of, of what we call titers, protection to variants, but they're always going to be many months behind the latest variants of concern. So that's very important for our folks to note. One other question I wanted to, to look into, you know, how do they go about deciding whether or not someone who donates their convalescent plasma to COVID is high enough titer? Or do they go ahead then and try and even within those batches, mix them to try and increase titers? So they're never mixed. Uh, it is a, a, a principle of good uh. practice to keep these things separate. Uh, so you know who it came from uh, and you know uh, how it was used. Uh, what is done, Christopher, is they take a little bit of it and they test it for antibody. And this is done by commercially available assays. And those commercially available assays, now with the experience of two years, we know that the higher the titer, titer is a word, uh, a lingo word for antibody. The higher the titer, the more antibody, the more antibody, the more it works. Right. Thank you for that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk some more in just a few moments. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. 
Dr. Arturo Casadevala is here with us discussing convalescent plasma, COVID-19, and its use for those with primary immunodeficiency diseases. Dr. Casadevala, what can you tell us about the initial trials of convalescent plasma and why you think many of the conclusions from these trials showed that its use did not significantly alter the course of COVID in trial participants? Victor, that's an excellent question. And I think to answer that, we need to put ourselves back on what was happening in the spring of 2020. Uh, in the spring of 2020, there was the historical evidence that this may work. And there was a tremendous need. You had nothing to give people who are showing up very sick. Many trials or many clinical trials were set up to try to ask the question, if you give plasma to somebody in the hospital who's very sick, does it change the course of the disease? And that's natural because there was nothing and we needed to test it. However, history would have told you that, if, that those trials were likely to be negative. Since we have known for a hundred years that antibody therapy and plasma is a form of antibody therapy works on the virus not on the inflammation. What puts you in the hospital is the inflammation. So unfortunately, many of those early studies, when people look at the data and they ask the question, does it reduce mortality? They could find no difference. And instead of a nuanced answer that, that is that the reason it doesn't reduce mortality is because it was given too late, the, the message out is plasma doesn't work. And that in many ways, was a tremendous disservice for an important therapy. I would say to you that the monoclonals were tested the same way, except the companies also did outpatient trials. And guess what? If you test them in the hospital, they don't change, they don't change the outcome. But if you test them on the outside, early on, they, they work. So both plasma and the monoclonals have the same active ingredient, antibody. So you, one can't say one works and one doesn't. Uh, at Hopkins, from very early on, we were lucky to get a gift from Michael Blumberg. And we used that money to set up an outpatient clinical trial, the only one that was carried out in the United States. So people were treated very early in disease. That, that study was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine about two weeks ago, and it has a very large effect. Basically, people treated it re all comers, it reduced the likelihood of, of progressing to hospitalization by 50%. And if you treat it in the first five days, it reduced it by 80%. And that's in fact better or comparable to the monoclonal antibodies. So the problem basically is, if I can put it in one sentence, is that plasma got treated in conditions when it could not work. And then people concluded that it did not work completing a futile logical loop that had a tremendous deleterious effect on the use of this, uh, of this therapy. Yeah, I've, I've got to tell you, when I saw those first trials come out, I was so frustrated and, and I was actually mad that I, I, I knew they were designed to, to fail. And, and that's part of the reason that prompted me to, to join Twitter. Um, and then when I saw your trial, because I keep up on these things, because that's what I do at, at IDF on research. I saw your trial design come out, and I just, I almost cheered and said, this is, I know this is going to work, and it did. So I want to thank you and, and your team for the fantastic work that you did in those trials. 
So you mentioned that, you know, this was in the past, very beginning of the pandemic. We're pretty well advanced now, two years into the pandemic now. And there are a lot of different, whether it's vaccines out there or the monoclonals, whether uh, or things like Evisheld, right, which for our community is the prophylactic use of kind of uh, a stew of, of these antibodies to attack different parts of the virus. But where are we now with convalescent plasma for COVID in this pandemic? Okay, so let's review the last two years. So the United States was the only country th through the FDA's wisdom that made it available to its citizens, first through our registry, which is run by the Mayo Clinic, which in fact produced evidence of efficacy. And that led the FDA in, in August 23rd to issue an EUA for plasma. It was very controversial, it was rolled out. Let's not go there, but let's just say that plasma was used very commonly in, in 2020 in the United States. Half a million people got treated. And then came the results of these clinical trials. And, and, the, and the use dropped dramatically. Despite the fact that the American doctors were using it right, they were giving it on admission, which was very different than the clinical trials. And, and then the use declined through 2021, such that by the end of 2021, very little plasma was being used. And then two things happened simultaneously. One of them is the results of the Hopkins trial and a couple of other American randomized controlled trials, one from Columbia and one from the University of Pennsylvania come in positive. So that's late 2021. And then Omicron hits. And Omicron overnight takes out most of our monoclonals. So then you have a situation in which, uh, in which you now have evidence for efficacy. You lost some of your major monoclonals, but guess what? people stop collecting plasma. So when Omicron hits, we are caught unprepared. Plasma is not there. So in, in January, this past three, four months ago, in the height of this, physicians began to order it again and began to get significant problem getting it. But as soon, but the blood banking community stepped up and slowly the system was put back into place such that by March, in early March, the Red Cross was collecting it again. So where are we now with it? It is available. It's under continuing emergency use authorization. The FDA has decided that the greatest benefit is in immunocompromised outpatients and in immunocompromised inpatients. Now, it's important to know why. It's not that it doesn't work in immunocompetence but it means is that the immunocompetents have a lot of other options available that have been already shown to work on them. But the immunocompromised have a big problem making antibody in many cases. So this now becomes replacement therapy. So where are we today? It is available. We know how to use it. And right now, the major or major efforts have been in physician education. We continue, I continue to tweet about it. We're working with the societies to make sure that this supply is in place and continues to be used for the immunosuppressed. Right, so if for our listeners out there, for those who have a primary immune deficiency disease or even those with a secondary immunodeficiency disease or, or anyone else who's immune compromised who might be listening, how can they access convalescent plasma if they're diagnosed with COVID? How would they go about requesting it? How would they find it? Well, I think obviously uh, they're doctors. 
I think that uh, the important thing, the important thing is if, if one gets COVID and one has trouble clearing it, plasma is available. And this is a discussion to be had with the doctor. If the doctor says to you, I heard it doesn't work, which is possible that is out there, what sure. you can say is there is, there, is, uh, there is evidence, please look at the evidence. There are guidelines now from the, from the AABB and from the Infectious Disease Society of America and the FDA has details on how to use it. So the information is out there uh, for this. Um, so I think an informed patient population is, is very important here because we cannot necessarily guarantee that, that, the, the, that the, what's happened in the last couple of months is necessarily filtered in throughout all the layers of the medical establishment. And that's a very important point is having uh, those with these groups of diseases or immune compromised having the information. And that's exactly why we're doing this podcast today. And you're being a great part of, of helping us inform folks to advocate for themselves to get the treatments they need to stay healthy. So before we go, Dr. Casadeval, do you have any parting thoughts or words for us on convalescent plasma, whether it's for this pandemic, future uses, lessons from this for the next pandemic? So uh, there's a lot to unpack there, Christopher. So let's, let's kind of uh, review uh, the availability and the cost. So it is a product that is made from people. It is from altruistic donors. It is not associated with profit, but there are costs. And the reason is, look, you got to use equipment to collect it. It needs to be tested. And, and, and the good thing is that a billing code has been issued that allows physicians to, to, uh, to, renew, to, to uh, bill for it so that they can um, uh, pay the blood bankers for the, for the work that is needed in generating and, and testing it. The, my view is that this was to be a stopgap therapy. This was to be something in which we deploy right away and, the, and then the antivirals will come in and the monoclonals will come in and then we would rapidly move away from it because we would have better reagents. Two years into the pandemic, convalescent plasma is standing. And the reason that it's standing is because of the significant strength, and in particular, its ability to keep up with the variants. Uh, there is a lot of donors now. It turns out that people who had COVID and are vaccinated, or had vaccinated and have COVID, have enormous amounts of antibody in their plasma. And this plasma is now plentiful and, and available. Uh, and I think the, the other part of your question, what, what about the future pandemics? Well, I think convalescent plasma has been a roller coaster. It's been a lot of difficult days, uh, has been also very promising days when we had uh, good data. But I think the most important thing I can say to you is that in two years, we have learned how to use it. And that is a great human accomplishment because convalescent plasma will be there in the next crisis. When the next virus comes in and we have no therapy, people will again go back to this therapy that goes back over a hundred years. And this time, our time has taught, will teach them how to use it. They will not do, hopefully, the kind of test, uh, randomized controlled trials inside hospitals where it's not likely to work. 
hopefully will be set up from the beginning as outpatients. And hopefully it will be even more effective then than it is now. Thank you. And, and you know, on that point, I, I think it's researchers like yourself and many others, it's organizations and foundations like IDF, our volunteers and our members who, if and when that next pandemic comes, we will learn from this experience and we'll be out there on the front lines with you fighting to keep safe those who are the most vulnerable to whether it's COVID-19 or the next pandemic. Our, from our end, we need you. Uh, we need you to continue to provide this. Uh, this therapy has been developed and brought forward by a coalition of physicians, regulators at the FDA, and blood bankers. We don't have a pharmaceutical establishment promoting it. We don't have connections, political connections. We don't have lobbyists. There is no profit in this. And yet it is critical, a critical part of the arsenal, in particular for the immunosuppressed. So I, I ask you to pay attention. And I ask, and we need you to continue the supply because the last thing I want to see is that, uh, that as we go through one of these trials, that people stop collecting it again because this COVID has become endemic. What that means is we're going to have to live with it. And we have millions of immunosuppressed patients in this country who, when they get it, they have a rougher time with it. This is a population that can benefit from this therapy and, and having the listeners as allies in this could, in, could be tremendously helpful in making sure that it is there as we continue to need it. Those are fantastic parting points that I can't improve upon. So with that being said, Dr. Casa Duval, thank you so very much for sharing your expertise with Convalescent Plasma. I'm sure our listeners will be highly appreciative of all of the great information you shared today. And uh, you're at Hopkins right across the street more or less from the Immunity Foundation. I hope to run into you again real soon and hopefully before the next pandemic. Dr. Casa Duval, thank you. Christopher, thank you for having me. I'm happy to return in the future. Uh, this is a evolving, developing story. So there is a lot more ahead. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and wanna learn more, Please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically and leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you'd like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.